Welcome to the Lindsay Hadley Podcast Show. I'm coming to you from the North Shore of Oahu, where weekly I interview some of the world's most inspiring people from business, philanthropy, and entertainment. I love collecting humans, and these are some of my favorites I've found along the way. This podcast is brought to us by Capita Financial Network. Do you need help with the next steps of your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, state attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call or schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube. Hi, welcome to the Lindsay Happy Show brought to you by Capital Financial Network. I'm so thrilled to have a very cool guest on my show today, Brian Smith, who, uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm married to an Australian from Queensland, Jeff Hadley, and we have three little boys that are all dual citizens that are Australians, and we've lived there off and on and traveled there every year. And Brian is originally from Australia, which I'm so excited, and one of the best-known brands globally, probably, when it comes to um, retail the world knows out of Australia, Brian is the founder of the company Uggs, which almost every one of my friends from Utah is rocking all year long, not just in the winter. I've got some fun stories to talk with Brian. I've got some fun stories to talk with you about all this. But uh, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for being here with us. Pleasure, Lindsay. It's great to be here. Thank you. Oh, mate. Well, it's so good. I'm going to call you mate because I'm going to use my Aussie vernacular now. There we go. (laughs) So, Brian, um, you're now living in Encinitas, California. You've had an incredible yeah. career. You started out in Australia. What part of Australia are you from originally? I grew up on the East Coast near Sydney. And uh, when I was in my very early 20s, I moved to Perth for 10 years and then came over here. I love Perth. I, I, in my early career, I put on a music festival in Perth, Australia. We had, wow. we had an event um, during the Commonwealth Dignitary World Meeting where the Prime Minister of Australia at the time, was Julia Gillard participated in, and okay. we raised a bunch of money for polio eradication. And I got to spend some time back and forth on that side of the country. But I've mostly been the East Coast girl too, the Queensland area. But yeah. but I love that you're a surfer. I live on the North Shore of Oahu, and we're big time surfers. Oh, wow. My family loves, and I should say big time. We're big time into it. Um, we my Bruh. son has actually gotten really good the last few years, and he surfs a pipeline. He's one of the best surf in the world. And oh my god, that's pretty courageous. It's really brave. It makes me nervous, but. He, you know, luckily he goes when it's a little smaller. He doesn't go in the really big stuff. But our some of our friends are pros, and I work in that industry, and it's so fun to connect with you. So, Brian, why don't you share with our audience a little bit of your story and how you ended up selling, uh, which I believe was to Decker Outdoor Corporation, um, and Correct. this was in the 90s. And then later you've gotten into now writing and keynote speaking and, and other investment and opportunities. I'd love to kind of hear the trajectory of your story from your own mouth. It'd be so fun to hear it. Well, 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 we'll just skim through it because it's, you know, 20 years of uh, building that brand before I sold it. And how it started out, I I'd spent 10 years training to become a, a, an accountant, a chartered accountant, and which is like a CPA here. And the day I graduated, I quit because I hated accounting. And uh, I was, you know, hanging around in Perth, wondering what I could do. And I'd started meditation back then. I, I bought a book on yoga, and that sort of led into meditation. And I was thinking one morning in this this meditation, what what am I going to do? And I thought, you know, I've got all these goosebumps. And I thought, oh, my God, all the big trends are coming out of California, like Levi jeans and waterbeds and, 
you know, all the surf brands and things. So I thought, I'm going to go to California. I'm going to find the next big thing and bring it back to Australia. Smart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, within a few weeks, I arrived at LAX. I had a surfboard in my suitcase and I rented a little house in Santa Monica and rented a van and uh, drove straight to Malibu because I'd been reading about that in surf magazines all my life. It was like my <laughs> mecca. And uh, I spent a couple of months up there not finding the next big thing uh, until about uh, October, after about four or five months, uh, October, November, the water was getting really cold and, and the wind had got cold and I I finished surfing and I was pulling on my sheepskin boots on the beach and I just had this this bolt of, you know, th this goosebump moment again and I thought, oh, my God, mm. there are no sheepskin boots in America and I knew that one in two Australians had some sort of sheepskin footwear. So I looked at my buddy Doug and just said, hey, man, we've got to go into business. We're going to be instant millionaires. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, every entrepreneur has felt that, you know. So anyway, bottom line is we, we arranged to bring boots in from this distributor in Western Australia, uh, Country Leather, and, and Doug was going to be the salesman. So he went on the road with these samples and came back a week later with about 150 business cards of every shoe retailer and not a single order. And, and he said, Brian, they tell me we're crazy selling sheepskin in California. And, and it, it sounds sort of plausible, but I knew Australia's climate's identical to San Diego, where I live. And I thought, you know, that, that, that can't be right. And I thought, how come all my friends at Malibu think this is the best idea in the world? And it struck me that, oh, my God, so many of them went to Australia on their surf trips and they bought four or five pairs of boots back for their buddies. So within the surf market, it was really, really well known. Mm -hmm. So Doug and I switched gears, you know, like an, every entrepreneur, when you hit a wall, you have to sort of figure a way around. Most Everybody says pivoting now, which is what we did. And we said, okay, let's go to the surf shop. So I remember he made, Doug made me go on the road this time. So I remember driving from Santa Monica down to, uh, uh, I think it was Con Surfboards in, in Santa Monica. And I walked in and I was really sheepish. I had this little bag of samples and I, and I opened it up. And he goes, oh, man, Ugg boots, they're great. What are you doing with those? And I said, well, I, you know, I'm thinking of importing them into America. And he goes, oh, my God, that's fantastic. You'll make a fortune. They're the best. I've got a pair, you know. And, I, and then I went to the next <laughs> store and the next store. They all said the same thing, you know. So by the time Doug and I got back to Santa Monica a week later, uh, you know, we realized we were really going to make millions, you know. but. <laughs> It never occurred to us that we hadn't asked for an order because we didn't have any inventory, right? <laughs> so we didn't bother asking for orders. So anyway, now we knew we needed inventory. So by a fluke, my roommate overheard us saying we needed capital and he had some friends at work, his work, that were looking to invest. So we raised about twenty grand, which in today's money is about 80000 so it was a lot of money. And we sent twenty down or fifteen down to Australia and ordered five hundred pairs of boots. And they arrived back in, you know, in, in Santa Monica uh like the first week of December. And we you know, and we stacked them all in the third bedroom in my house and and packed up our duffel bags and our vans and we, we headed back out to the shoot, to the surf shops and 
I remember going back down to Con Surfboards and I walked in with this huge bag of product and an order pad and I said, okay, Jim, how many do you want? And he goes, oh, Brian, well done, man. But, you know, we couldn't sell them in our store. We just sell flip-flops and surfboards and trunks and, and you know, way too expensive for us. You'd do great in the shoe stores. Uh-huh. And uh-oh, and the next store, oh, well done, Brian, but, you know, they're way too expensive for us. We just sell surfboards and bikinis and trunks, and you know, you'll do great in the shoe store. And it, So this happened all the way oh. down the coast, the whole month of December, and when we tallied up our, our orders for the first year's sales, which was, you know, December 31, it turned out to be 28 pairs, exactly $1,000. And... uh it was like devastating, and uh, so you know, obviously, obviously, Doug couldn't get paid on on twenty eight pairs of boots, so he got another job, and I was sort of stuck. I, I that would be a good time to give up then, but I still had four hundred and something eighty pairs in my warehouse, and all my investors' money tied up. So the the long and short of it is, I, I figured out a way to keep going, but. The the benefit of what happened there is, and I've, I've started a lot of businesses since, is I ended up writing a book called The Birth of a Brand, and it's a roadmap for entrepreneurs, and I used the whole UG story from the day I arrived till the day I sold the company. And the theme of the book is that you can't give birth to adults, right? Every... If you look at the Wall Street Journal stock exchange page, every single one of those companies probably started with a thousand dollars sales, right? Now, thirty years later, they're all you know mega millions. But every business starts with someone conceiving the idea and then taking action. So the action, you know, the birth of Bug was buying six pairs of samples, right? But then every industry, every business just goes into this dormancy and it lies there. And it lies there as an infant. And just like an infant, it can't get up and go to college. You know, you have to keep feeding it and changing the diapers. And every now and again, you'll get a giggle out of it. But but it's just the most horrible phase. And that's when most entrepreneurs give up on their ideas. But if you can get through that and keep it alive, it'll start toddling, which is when you know, the magazines are writing articles about you and your first true believers are all telling all their friends. And that's really cool phase. And that'll quickly go into the youth phase, which is the best of every business. You've got consistent orders, you know, production's working, sales and administration's working, and, you know, the, everything's clicking. The warehouse is working. And you can run a $20, 30000000 million company in that phase. But if it is a really great product or a really great service, you got to hit the teenage years. And do you remember when, as a teenager, you wanted to be at every party on a Saturday night? Yeah. Well, it's identical in business. You want to be in every major trade show and you want to be in every mass retailer. And it's just suicidal to to, to try and do that and go so fast because it'll strip out your capital. And, you know, I've seen so many businesses go bankrupt through their success because they weren't ready for it. And uh, so, you know, then it becomes mature. So, the bottom line is that book uh, turned out to be a really, really great book. And everybody kept saying, Brian, you should be talking about this from the stage, you know. So I eventually uh, switched careers after, you know, I had another career in between my speaking but and, and after I sold the company. But I've come to absolutely love speaking. I, I really 
my stories are really inspirational and motivational. And I have so many entrepreneurs come up afterwards and go, oh, my God, Brian, I was going to give up my business. But now I understand the phase I'm in. I'm going to keep at it and go. And that's really, really yeah. heartwarming. And that's why I love speaking so much. That's amazing, Brian. What a great story. I mean, so you said you went back to all of these surf shops. They said, hey, it's good and it, it'll be good in the shoe stores. What was it you said? And hey, eventually, we, you know, like you said, you just keep persevering. Who was like your first, where was your first win where you're like, oh my gosh, they finally ordered it kicking in? It was- yeah, it took a couple of years. Because um, I, you know, I started off selling a swap meets and street fairs and things like that. But I had a van, a Dodge van, and I, I used to go surfing at six in the morning at Malibu. And at eight o'clock, I'd get coffee and, and uh, I'd open up the back of the van. I had a full inventory in the back of the van. And so I ended up like what well, in today's terms it's called a pop up shop. Yeah. I had a pop up shop 40, 45 years ago in the, in the park in Malibu. And I had this incredible clientele come in. And the rest of that season, we did about $6,000 in sales. Amazing. And yeah, but I, it, it was still not much. I thought it'd be way, way better. So, uh, you know, I got a summer job. And the next fall, I decided, okay, I'm going to advertise. So I got these. You know, really good-looking models, a guy and a girl, and posed them on the beach at Wyndham Sea in La Jolla with perfect hair and perfect clothing. And per- the Ugg boots were like this major part of the ad. And uh, I ran that um, in October, November, December in the surf magazine stuff. And the sales went to about 10000 And I couldn't figure it should have been way, way more. So got another summer job. And then this year, I got better-looking models and a more expensive photographer, and we went down to the, you know, um, um, La Jolla to the beach again, wind and sea, and posed them on the beach with the perfect sunset and everything. And the sales that year went to like twenty thousand, and it should have been way, 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 way more. And so I had to get another summer job. And th- this year, I was working on a golf course in, in East San Diego, and. That season, I decided, you know, I'm just going to go out of business. It's too hard. Americans don't understand sheepskin. It's an expensive product. You know, the retailers can't really afford to, to stock it. And so I, I planned to, to just close out all of the product and, and get out of business. But in October, you know, the first storm always hits California, and Californians just sweet. oh, it must be winter, right? They're just crazy like that. And so I got home this afternoon and I was soaking wet from this storm and the phone had about 25 messages on it and and it was all the surf shop retailers going Brian Brian god it's been crazy here today everyone's in here asking for Ugg boots I, I've run out I need more and and like the bottom line is I couldn't even go out of business properly you because know, the demand was so strong by all of these guys so I ordered a bunch more from Australia and I gave all the surf shops everything I had and uh, this time, though, I decided, well, if I'm going to stay in business, I've got to figure out this advertising. So I ended up having a beer with one of my surf shop retailers, and I was explaining this problem of advertising and how I just wasn't getting the mark, you know. And he just said, shut up, Brian. And he calls out back to all these little 12-, 13-year-old grommets, you know, mm-hmm. who hang their surfboards in the shop, you know. And he said, what do you guys think of Uggs? And every one of them. Just went, oh, those Uggs, man, they're so fake. Have you seen those ads? Those models, they can't surf. And like 
instantly I realized I'm sending the wrong message to my target market. And I was literally embarrassed when I saw mm. it in their eyes. I was embarrassed at how bad these fake ads were, you know. <laughs> thought it was all about the product. And so I switched gears again and I called up a buddy of mine who was, uh, you probably know this name, Pete Townend. He was a former world surf champion. Yeah. Little Aussie guy. I do, and, yeah. Uh, he was running the, the Scholastic Surf Association. I said, Pete, you got any young kids, you know, who are going to go pro soon? Because I, you know, I got no money, but I can pay them in Ugg boots, you know. And so he gave me two guys, Mike Parsons and Ted Robinson. And this time, instead of hiring a photographer, I just took my little Canon Sure Shot, you know, and we went surfing at Black's Beach in La Jolla and Trestles up in San Onofre. And these are iconic walks. They're about a mile to get to the water. There's always fantastic surf there. And so I just figured, well, maybe all these kids who read Surfer Magazine would would fit in this photo, you know. And so I ran those, you know, just selected a couple of photos walking to and from the beach. And when I ran those ads in October, November 27th, the sales went to $220,000. Wow. And you know the lesson I learned? And this is, this is also part of, you know, like my book's full of all these dumb lessons that it take, <laughs> took me years to learn. If you read it, it'll save you a lot of time if you're starting out in a business. But what I learned is you never advertise the product. In the, the ads I was running, the boots were like half the, half the page, right? The photos I used of Mike Parsons, the, you know, on a page that big, the boots, you could hardly see them. But I, but what happened is every little kid who reads Surfer Magazine would just die to be walking along that road with Mike Parsons or Ted Robinson, you know. And so the the rule is that you never advertise your product. You advertise the features and the benefits. So I figured out what it took to want all these little kids to 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 be in this ad, and it created a cult in the in the youth surf market, and. If you didn't have a pair of Ugg boots at Laguna High when you were, you know, 14 or 15 years old, you were just not cool. And there's the other angle is that, you, you know, kids don't have 80 bucks to spend on a pair of boots, but they can whine really good. Mom, all the kids at school have got Ugg boots. I don't have, you know, so mom ends up, you know, buying them at Christmas time. And that really was the beginning the, the beginning of the the success of Ugg took four years for me to figure out that formula. That's amazing. That is such yeah. a great story. And like, I mean, it, it's to listen to our listeners. They might just be like, "Well, duh!" Like, obviously. But when you say when you're along the journey as an entrepreneur, like you said, you felt stupid. You were like, "I can't believe I didn't see this before." But that's yeah. what we do. We make the assumptions. Like my mentor, his name was Joe Ritchie. He often talked about how common sense is not common practice. That was a right. that was the way I that was the way I characterized what he always talked about. But he called it dumb smart. He would say like right. people take for granted the thing that's in front of everyone, and so like a lot of times, like you said, to to actually like advertise and communicate the utility, the value to the person, or yeah. or the values, or the 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 identity, or the narrative yeah. that's authentic. You know, that's different. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you if you wrote a software that saved you know users all this time. You know, the last thing you advertise is an engineer at the computer and, you know, the samples of the product. You advertise some guy in the Bahamas drinking rum drinks with all the time he's saving. Yes. Right? Yes. 
complete switch is anyway it's a i talk a lot about branding from the stage when i when i get a chance you know your brand is not your trademark and it's not your you know it's not your logo your brand is what your customers think of you and and i I have a whole series of stories about branding which i talk about from the stage oh brian that's such a great uh way to communicate it so for the listeners, one more time, what's the name of your book that you wrote and where can they find it? Is it on Audible? Yes. Can they listen? Yeah. The Birth it, of I, a Brand actually, by Brian the Smith. The Birth of a Brand. Mm-hmm. And I actually did an Audible version about two years ago. So you, if you don't like reading, you can download it from Audible. Amazing. And, and or if you're like it's, me it's, and you just don't have a lot of time to sit and read, but you can like be driving and listening to a book or on a plane, you know, like multitasking yeah. i mean i i'll i'll be doing dishes or doing the laundry or running on the beach and getting yeah, yeah. exercise and yeah and it's a, a really fast read i think mostly because the readers are never going to be sure i'm going to be around next chapter you know because <laughs> talk about all of the the disasters that i did you know thank god the product was so good hmm. because it saved me through all of my my disastrous decisions and I made some good ones, but that, but you know, I always figured it out in the end. Yeah, well, Brian, you know, it, it it's very evident to me that you had the humility to, to as you use the word, you know, that we currently have coined, but pivot. Like you could have just been, ah, oh, these kids don't know what they're talking about. They're stupid. You could have, you could have made a posture of making everyone else wrong. You know what? Nobody understands stuff that us Australians who are so much more superior than Americans, which, by the way, I might agree. With. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean, like. You know, you could come up with a narrative that would just negate the evidence in front of you. Like I recently put a television show that I think is an awesome idea. It's a TV show I'm producing with a group of my friends called Made. And the concept is about artists and craftsmen and kind of think like chef's table, but for like the best samurai yeah. sword maker in the world or the best knife hat miller or, you know, the best ukulele. That, that sounds really good. Yeah, it's a fun show. And we had celebrities who are willing to come in the show and that are genuine fans of these master craftsmen. And the show's made, you learn how they were made as people as you learn how they make their craft. And these are like, a lot of them are indigenous that are like buying craft, a didgeridoo maker, you know, something from the Aboriginal community where, you know, it, it may not carry on through to the next generation in a, in a world of fast yeah. fashion and fast making. And but in this case, that heartfelt making is just a great thing. So long story short, we met through this guild and the audience was a really conservative group. Um, that, you know, there's 60,000 people, but they're high, highly faith driven. And the feedback I had one of the makers, he goes, I don't believe in heaven or hell. I just try to be better every single day. Well, my back, my spiritual purview is really open aperture. And I'm like, I, I totally believe that, you know, everybody has their walk with God, call that. And I believe that there's like, you look for the light, you look yeah. for the good, you accept people from where they're at, and you just meet them where they're at. And so, but some of the audience was like, yeah, I don't, I don't see how this is an edifying. Yeah. I got in this posture where I was like, they don't know what they're talking about. That's so ignorant, you know, but then I realized, yeah. you know, I have to understand my audience. Like I have to understand how to better communicate that, right. that a person's getting the same values. There's a lot of spirituality and philosophy in my book oh, because great. I talk. For every disaster, there was a learning experience, right? The philosophy of of the the real world based on the mistakes that I made, and I I can remember being terrified, like about a year and a half ago, when I decided I'm going to talk about this from the stage, right? 
And I started talking, you know, you know, God's not out there at the end of the universe. You know, yeah. I, I really believe there's a, a fragment or a spark yeah. or of spirit inside every single one of us. And it has some direction it wants to take us, right? Uh-huh. And and every time we do something that's in alignment with that, it, it gives us a message. And that's why I talked about goosebumps a couple of times earlier. That That's my spirit telling me, hey, Brian, you're on the right track, you know. And I challenge the audience after that. You know, next time you get the goosebumps, and they all do because I ask, used to ask, put your hands up if you do, but everybody does. So when you get them, just stop for a second and think, what did I just think? What did I just do? Well, who did I just meet? There'll be something that you can identify that is is sort of meaningful in in the ongoing daily pursuit of life, you know. So I've been, you know, I've always been a very, very strong believer in in God and the spirit inside me. And so to talk about it from the stage, the first time I was so scared because I thought, you know, I'd get rocks thrown at me or something. but I couldn't believe how many people came up to me afterwards and said, oh, my God, Brian, thank you for talking about the spirit. It's really central to my life. And and so it's now given me permission to take that out and expand on it. So it's, That's uh, amazing. I mean, life is a lot more than your business, right? <laughs> life, you know, business is what you do in the time to pay the rent, but you're really living your life every day. And uh, the more you can find the strength or, you know, the meaning – or a direction from within, that that's when you're really enjoying a good life. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Brian. Jordan Peterson says your life isn't, you know, drinking margaritas on a beach somewhere. Those are the, those moments are wonderful and they come, but they're few and far between. It's the way your spouse greets you at the door. It's the time you spend right. at the dinner table with your family. It's the interactions in the day-to-day with the, your colleagues at work or even just like how you how you wake up and, and, and experience the world, your way of being that if you get those things right, you can really put your life together. And I do believe that it's really cool to see that more and more people have an open heart to hear as long as we're not shoving our beliefs down anyone's throat and we're not um, making them wrong, that there's space for people to be who they are and express their humanity and say, this is what I believe. This is what I'm about. I mean, who could ever fault you for saying, I believe that, you know, God, there's a divine spark in me. Like, that's your experience, and you're sharing your heart. And I, I don't use religion as a as a benchmark. It's it's pure, you know, spirit right through, and uh, you know, so there's no controversy. That, that's what I was a little bit worried about, but there was no controversy whatsoever. Yeah, everybody, everybody just got it. Yeah, I think you're right, and even those who maybe don't um, wouldn't use like the term God, they understand the human experience of an inner knowing and an inner. Like my friends, I have a, a one of my best friends is an atheist, and she she understands intuition and connection to like our higher self or whatever you know, some source of love or some benchmark of the ideal. So that's I think beautiful. that's really inclusive what you're saying. I love it. So yeah. Brian, you're, you 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 sell your company. Um, you know, it's funny. I got to tell you this fun story. So um, this is going to be an embarrassing name drop, but I've worked with Kevin Bacon, the actor, right? So. And and actually, his wife is going to be on our show, Kira Cedric, in, in, here in a few weeks. And um, and he, I've worked with him in his charity in different capacities and supported his nonprofit work for years. And he t- he told me the story where he talked about something got brought up about us. I don't remember why. I might have been wearing them or something. But he said, "You know how that got really famous in Hollywood?" He goes, 
somebody on set, some producer had a bunch of celebrities be like, hey, when you walk from your trailer to the set and it's muddy in California, slip on these easy to slip on and off, you know, boosts, these cheap skin boosts that are Uggs. And, and then quickly, like the celebrities were like, we're taking photos of them wearing them, you know, paparazzi and people. And it was like, that's the, what the cool kids do. And so he, his, his perception of how Uggs became famous was that like celebrities were using it for their utility. And then it became who wore them a little bit, what you described with these athletes, you know, and I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's a a, a slight characterization, but it was like really funny from his perspective. There's a good backstory to that. If you, do you want to hear it? Yeah, please. Yeah. I'm going to mention this on stage. It is in my book because it's a really important, um, it's a really important marketing lesson, right? So I figured out how to get to the surface, right? It wasn't long I, I started the same method of getting into snowboard and skiing, going into the youth, right? Yeah, because yeah. snowboarding was just like, you know, the, the, the new youth coming through and nobody knew what to do with them, right? And uh, And it was pretty big. I figured out back east all the kids they don't surf or or snowboard but they play hockey and i figured out how to get into the hockey magazines the youth hockey in minneapolis and you know we ran mum of the week competitions and and again the the youth just saying all the all the best skaters have got ug boots you know and so the moms in the malls going well these are pretty nice i might get some for myself because you know i got to sit in that rink at 40 degrees all the time right so that's that's where Ugg was at. And I knew we needed a bigger image. And so I was sitting on a plane coming home from somewhere back east. And the girl next to me was reading People magazine and Us magazine. And I'm watching a flick the page and I'm looking at all these celebrities walking around Hollywood and they're naming what clothes they're wearing. And I said, Shit, I wonder how I how I can get into that market. And I was mentioning it to my buddy Doug, who, you know, the guy was on the beach with me when we conceived the idea. And I, he, he said, oh, you should go after the stylists. And I said, what the hell are stylists? And he goes, well, you know, in Hollywood, they have the, the makeup artists, the hair department, you know, the clothing department. They're all stylists. And so I did a bit of research and I found a mailing list of of 4,000 stylists in Hollywood. And I wrote them all and I I just wrote this blanket letter. I said, if you want a free pair of Ugg boots, contact me. And about 400 people did. Wow. And no, no, take that back, 40 people. It was 4,000 stylists, 40, 40 people. And so I just sent 40 pairs of boots out, right? And bit by bit, you know, I'd be watching a sitcom, you know, and there would be, you know, um, so, gosh, some starlet, you know, wearing Ugg boots. Yeah. And then they got in yeah. the grumpy old movie and, and you know, what's his name? Patrick Swayze was on set, you know. And, and so bit by bit, Hollywood started picking it up and, Eventually, these stylists, all the stylists started coming at me for free products, you know, and I, well, who's it for? Well, I'm doing so, I'm doing so, and so. And so it, from Kevin Bacon's perspective, he knew nothing about the prior 15 years of surfing and snowboarding and hockey. He just saw them in Hollywood and, and decided, oh, my God, these are new. This is great, you know. But it took a lot of work 
to get that. And, and it was a very deliberate strategy to get into Hollywood. And boy, once I'll tell you, the thing that changed the company around was uh, one photo. But I'm going to give you a backstory because now I got this image. I want to get it all over the country, right? And I thought, how can I do that? And I thought, I want to be on the, the, the center section of the lifestyle page in USA Today. Remember that newspaper? Right? Yeah. It was the biggest, yeah. biggest circulation in the US at the time. And, and so I, we had plenty of money. And, you know, the, I was doing about 11, 12 million in sales by now. And I went over to Boston and hired a PR agency. And um, I... Uh, put together this whole package and a press kit and everything. And I'd made an appointment with the, the fashion editor at USA Today in Chicago, like for three o'clock one afternoon. And so we eventually practiced our pitch all the way across and we finally arrived at Chicago in, in uh, USA Today's offices. It's five to three, right? And we announced ourselves and Margaret comes running out going, oh, Brian, Brian, I'm so sorry I've made this huge blunder. I've double booked. I have to be in this meeting. And I just, oh my God, you know, I put 60 grand into this campaign and it was now just lost because I, you know, my pitch was 45 minutes. And so I did this amazing bit of, of pivoting, right? Some instinct made me reach into my briefcase and I pulled out a tatty old green folder, you know, like, like one of, one of these things, right? And I had, I had all these photographs that people had sent me from all over the world of celebrities wearing Ugg boots, you know, Tom Petty and Sting, um, you know, uh, Tom, um, Neil Young, and it went through. And I'm showing her all these photographs, and then suddenly she's zeroed on it one, and she says, who's that? And I, and I said, no, no, you can't use that. And, and it was a tabloid from London someone had sent me. It was Pamela Anderson on the set of Baywatch in a red swimsuit and big, tall Ugg boots, right? <laughs> and she and she wrote down the name of the photographer and the name of the uh, tabloid and gone, like four minutes, she was gone. And I just realized, shit, we just blew that, you know. So next morning I'm, I'm at the airport in, in Chicago and, and I got my coffee and I got a copy of USA Today. Like I'm expecting nothing because this was like, you know, 15 hours later. Yeah. And uh, I flicked through the main section and then I flicked through the money section and on the next page, front and center, is that shot of Pamela Anderson, and when oh. you, it was about, and when you open up the next page, it was the entire page was nothing but sheepskin, shearling, the history of fashion in wool, all of you know all the stuff that I'd given her, all of my competitors, which sort of bummed me out at the time, but you know, and <laughs> by the time I got back to San Diego. I found that the phones had not stopped all day from consumers wow. wanting to know where the retailer in my area. Yeah. And from retailers going, what the hell are these Ugg boots? I've got all the people in the store asking for Ugg boots. Well, I don't even know what they are, you know? And so <laughs> that one fluke, right? It was an yeah. absolute fluke, changed the course of the business. And that's when it went really, you know, completely across Amazing. America. And Ugg was. That's old name after that. That's incredible. What year was that, Brian? What when did that when did it that have that was, tipping point? That was nineteen ninety four. Nineteen ninety four. That is amazing. Yeah, and I sold the I sold the business in ninety five. That that plus one other fluke that I'll tell you if you want. Yeah. 
uh, was was what really launched the company. The the other fluke was like it's karmic. You know, I, I believe in karma. You you put out stuff, you get the equivalent back, yeah, right? good yeah. and bad. Yeah. And uh, for years, I'd been shipping all these boots to to like twenty different people in London and England. You know, at the request of this girl Trudy. Um, and it was a pain in the butt because it all required customs, separate customs invoices, and it was right in the worst time of our shipping season when we were the busiest. So, but I did it anyway because it was Trudy Styler, who was the wife of Sting, and I wanted to be part of that cool, you know, movement. And she called me up this year and said, oh, Brian, Brian, I've, I need the biggest favor. I've just been to a seminar. It's changed my world. I need a most perfect gift. Can you find the most perfect pair of tall sand size something Uggs? And here's where to send it. Do you have a pen? I go, yeah. And she goes, Oprah, care of Oprah Winfrey show in Chicago, right? And so when Oprah got them, she immediately ordered 20 more pairs for all her immediate staff. And then that began the dialogue as as we moved into me selling the company. I didn't have the the financing to take that worldwide. Like I, I knew if we announced her, remember it can't give birth to adults. Yes. You can't you can't go from infant to teenager. You'll crash and burn, right? Yeah. So I I had to work with the new company that I sold UG to and make sure they had the financing, the production ready. And it took about two seasons. And then when we announced Oprah, it was we were on Oprah's favorite things for for, you know, one two two sessions and Oprah's best picks for Christmas. It was it was like twenty eight minutes of nothing but UG when Oprah was at a, her absolute peak, and that was she created a societal shift worldwide that took it both male and female, black and white, took it all over the world, and that that's the beginning of UG getting into the hundreds of millions and eventually the billions because it's been over $2 billion the last couple of years, and it's been $1 billion for over seven or eight years now. So it, it, that was, you know, it was luck or a fluke, but then so was sending product out to the, the uh, stylist. You know, that luck or a fluke, you know, and life's all about that. It's taking experience and, and not knowing the outcome and uh, experimenting. And, and for every one that worked, there were 20 that didn't work. So... You know, that's the, be- that's the beauty of my book. That's amazing. I'm sure your book talks about this, but as an entrepreneur who's lived so much, people see oftentimes the tip of the iceberg, the success, and they think, well, how did they do it? And I mean, the, entre- the sport of entrepreneurship is such a high contact sport. There's so many yeah. unbelievable, yeah, it- <laughs> you know, like as a surfer, it's like my son getting, you know, he didn't, he's, he's been thrashed in those waves and crushed along the, the reef and he's. It had mouthful of salt water, broken bones. You yeah. know what I mean? And all the things that you, that go with trying to advance yourself in a sport and entrepreneurship Absolutely. is exactly the same. And you do have to have this appetite for failure, this appetite for ridicule, yeah. this appetite for burnt relationships and disappointments. Yeah. And that's been the hardest part of the journey as an entrepreneur for me because I care so much about what people think. And I, and part of that's from insecurity. Part of it's actually because I love people. I care about them. So their opinion yeah. matters, you know? So when, yeah, when misunderstandings yeah. happen or things don't go well, tremendous amounts of personal accountability and not everybody has the aperture for that accountability. And so relationships don't always continue. Yeah. But I, for the most part, I've had yeah. mostly beautiful relationships in my career. Most of them are amazing, but the few that didn't go well, 
some of them I felt like, man, I got to cut that person out of my purview. But for the most part, because they, you know, they're toxic. But for the most part, like anybody that I've disappointed, that haunts me, you know. But I think those, that's the cost of all the treasured relationships I have along the way. It is, it you is. know. And and the, 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 some of the philosophy from my book is is and one that's applicable to what you're just saying is that nearly always your most disappointing disappointments become your greatest blessings. Totally. You know. And I asked the audience, you know, who in the last 12 months had something happen at the time you thought it was disastrous? And now you look back and think, thank God that happened because I'm in such a better place now. I would say 80 to 90% of the people put their hand up because yeah. it's just such a timeless. You don't learn from all the good things that, that work. You learn from things that don't. And even That's in relationships, right. I do this thing, you know, a bad relationship, cut it off. And, you know, the, the benefits come after that. You don't have to deal with that anymore. And my, my other favorite piece of philosophy in the book, and, and this is timeless for every entrepreneur and even, even sophisticated business people who are introducing a new product line or a new element of something, or even if you're just trying to get a new system over to your employees, right? Yeah. And the, that saying is the, the quickest way for a tadpole to become a frog is to live every day happily as a tadpole, right? It's right, but I, you know, I bet your listeners in one year they've forgotten most of what I talked about today, but they'll remember. You know, the quickest way for a tadpole to become a frog is live every day happily, and that's the key word: happily as a tadpole. Because if you just keep doing what you're doing and it's good. Eventually, you won't even know that time's passed, and you look back and go, "Oh my God, look what I built!" And that's, that's what I do so without. True, that's beautiful. Well, thank you for that incredible insight. You know, as I, I, you know, I think one of the things that I've learned too along my journey is that people would say that like the heart, the worst things happen to you, or the best things happen to you. They'd have these platitudes, and when you're in the middle of suffering, like when you're in the middle of something really hard can't hear that it's like you you are in too much pain yeah. for anyone to say this is best let's celebrate you have to go through and and be honest about and mourn and grieve and process all the difficulty that life the trials of life can you know afford and then at the end you can actually actively have that silver lining that gratitude because you can see the through line of value you know what i mean you, you just heard me to Talk about one more piece of philosophy. Please, please. I love it. <laughs> I have these mantras. I read it. I read this in a book over 25 years ago, and it was so profound that I typed them out, four little mantras, and I put them in the front of my daily planner. In fact, you know, this is my daily planner. In the front of that is the, this quote. It's feast upon uncertainty, fatten upon disappointment, invigorate in the presence of difficulties and enthuse over apparent defeat and they're they've been on my refrigerator for years as well no matter what happens in your personal life or your business life if you can feast fatten enthuse you know uh, the quicker you do it the better the circumstances will change if you spend a week going oh poor me why me? Why did this happen to me? The world's not fair. I hate these people. You'll just wallow in disappointment and uncertainty. But if you can take it head on, feast upon you know uncertainty, fatten upon disappointment, enthuse over apparent defeat. You know these will turn your attitude around so fast. And I mean, 
I've I've got to the point now where if something goes really bad, I go, God damn it, that's good. Now what's good about? It? And I I'm really yeah. What's good about it? And the quicker you go into positive motion, the quicker the solution will come. But but if you want, you can wallow in your misery for months and months and months. And I know a lot of people who do that. They won't move on. They just oh that guy me and. I'm not doing this again. I hate this, but you know, the longer you do that, the the less likelihood you've ever got to survive. Yeah, that's so beautiful, and I, I viscerally I know that's true. And there's been times in my life, based on capacity, situation, all that, that I have made the fatal mistake of of the unbecoming self you know, self loathing or nurturing of the disappointments. And yeah, it it bears no good fruit. You know, it just it just sucks from you the the beauty and the value of today. And, you know, we have to have compassion for ourselves because like, you know, I was there at that time, but recently I had a disappointment last year. I worked for 10 months and there's some other people involved that were wonderful people I all cared about. We were putting together this big project, this big music. I put on music festivals and concerts and produced these big, large, large right. events. It was televised and we're putting all this together with all this talent. Everything was going well. The money was there. It didn't work out. And I remember I, I was driving. It was my son's birthday. We were driving along the coast here on the North Shore and because I didn't want to read my text, but I, I saw that my text was being blown up by some of the people I work with. So I asked my 15-year-old son to read it for me, to be like my seeing eye dog while I was driving. And he reads, oh, mom, they, you know, he calls me mom because my husband calls me mom to the boys. So he says, mom, this is, oh, this is bad news. And he reads it and they say the project fell over and it wasn't any fault of our own. It, it had to do with external situations that we could control. And, and that sometimes that makes it even more painful because you're like, oh, like we did everything right. It just does feel unfair, like universally unfair. But like, anyway, I, I remember feeling like, all right, I'm going to give myself the next 10 minutes till we get home in this car to nurse my woods and then I'm done. And then I'm going to, you know what I mean? And I gave myself like a timeline of being like, oh, that sucks so bad. That was so much energy and time and money and relationships and reputation and all these things. I got home and I was like, this is happening for me, not to me. And I just changed my thinking, right? And then the most beautiful things came out of it. My job at Capita, which has been the best thing that ever happened to me professionally. Um, you know, so I'm now in this sweet spot where I get to pour into people and take people around the world and do the philanthropy I was doing before at scale I never could because I'm able to just right. be in such a better position. And it it directly came from the failure of that experience. So because it, I had to pivot and then new opportunities come. So I'm so with you. Like, you know, at the end of the day, um, even if it's not true, even if like our lives had been better, had it all worked out the first instance or whatever, yeah, we yeah. live better. I know this to be true, that my life is better when I fixate on love and gratitude and beauty. Yeah. What I see what's coming in around me as a gift. Uh, I just, my life just is qualitatively better. That I know. And so why not? You know what I mean? So I love what you're saying. It's just, it resonates with me at a core level, Brian. I was just going to say, we're here at the top of the hour. Is there any last comment you want to share with the listeners of something that you well, say? I love you. You gave some great. I, uh, what a, the, the most common question I get after I finish my talks on stage, because uh, I don't put this in my talk, but um, we have Q&A. And they say, you know, Brian, why did you sell business, your business? And now... Now you see that it's in the billions. Uh, you, you're resentful that the, you did that, and the answer is is no. I sold at the perfect time because I'd never understood financing well. So I was always 
at the at the the mercy of the 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 you know the producers of the product you know with the payment terms and everything and i was really stifling the growth and i remember we just had this season with about 15 million in sales but the pre-season orders looked like the next year was going to be 25 million and i knew i didn't have a hope in hell of financing that and so i was trying to figure out what to do and I was on my way to uh, a trade show in Atlanta called the Super Show. It was a big athletics show. And way up the other end of the baggage claim was this guy called Doug Otto. And do you remember my story about the parking lot at Malibu? Yes. A couple of spaces up, this guy, Doug Otto, was selling these triple-decker uh, flip-flops, right? You know, pink, yellow, pink neoprene flip-flops. And he, over the year, we saw each other on the, you know, on the road all the time in and out of surf shops, and we were good friends. And anyway, he went on to get the license for Tiva Sandals, and when the outdoor market took off in the early 90s, his company just went through the roof, you know, from, from like 12 million to 60 million, and he took his company public. And now I see him at the other end of baggage claim, and man, I got the biggest dose of goosebumps that I've ever had. Because I went, oh my God, it's perfect. I knew he had about $28, $30 million in the bank. And his company died every winter. Our company died every summer. And I knew if we put them together, it would be a brilliant wow. business. So I well, we high fived each other. And uh, we had the accountants talking that afternoon about how do we get started merging these two companies. Brilliant. And as. And as for resentment, I, I have none at all. I, I am so proud of the brand. Yeah, and you should if be. You remember, yeah, if you remember the, the theme of the book, which is you can't give birth to adults, I, I'd conceived the idea. We bought the samples. That was the birth. It went through its infancy, like three years, me failing at advertising, and then eventually started twiddling, and, and then – got into the youth and, and I'd, I'd taken it all the way, you know, plus 10, 15 million into the teenage years. And and I knew I I am not the right person to take this out into the billions. And so when I met Doug, it was like handing my business off, like, like walking my daughter down the aisle and handing it off to the new husband who could take it out into the world and, and make it big and have babies and you know and that's what they've done they've done a brilliant job in taking it into the billions so i am every time i walk through the airport and i you know i see someone i always look behind to make sure it's the ug brand you know business we're big fans of the product so so thrill thrilling to meet you brian and um from one aussie to another thanks for being on the show i'm an honorary aussie i never even got this but i love i love it i love yeah. that you came on and thank you so much for coming on have a wonderful week hey my pleasure you too do you need help with the next steps for your financial plan think capita capita is a financial network built around you they have a team of financial advisors cpas estate attorneys Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call to schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at www.capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube.